1: If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com.
2: From coast to coast and around the world,
0: you're going online with Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio around. Online with Bill Alexander.
2: Good day, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're listening to us on WMCK.FM, also on at TV, Channel 77, and also on CU TV, California University of Pennsylvania. And we stream at italknet.com as we broadcast live from the Phil Ginetti Motor Studio, high atop High Street in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. If you're looking for a quality pre owned vehicle, give Chip a call at 724 785 6800 or stop by his website, com. Well, welcome back to the program here on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whatever time you're listening to us, and also on WMCK on Tuesday nights at 9 o'clock, and I'm glad you're able to join us. Tonight on the program, we're going to have someone that is uh, dealing with transformational change. Trust me, I can speak English tonight. (laughs) His name is Ron Karushi, and Ron is from uh, Navalent. and Ron is on the phone line right now. Ron, how are you doing this evening? Hey, Bill, great
0: to be with you. Hey. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Ron, give my audience a little bit of background of who you are.
0: So, yeah, I, um, I spend my days with a, my colleagues at Navalent, tricks in the hallways of large companies and small companies, um, helping leaders uh, of all kinds get themselves either out of a ditch or um, to some grand vision uh, of change they have for their organizations or their teams. Um, And when they discover that those journeys are much harder than they planned or that the intentions in their head somehow aren't coming out of their mouths and their choices the way they wanted, uh, we go on the journey with them. We help them construct a plan and and a set of choices and some messaging that helps them realize the change they dream of.
2: So are you working with these people to make them better leaders?
0: Sometimes, sometimes we get a call. We you know uh, the requests for our help come in the form of a leader who's maybe reached the limits of their own skill set, or they take it on a new, a new role that's much bigger and much harder. Okay. Um, or they, or they suck, and <laughs> you know they've been told they suck, and someone has suggested that in order to save their career and be able to pay their mortgage, they call for help
2: and if someone says they are that you're working with someone that said that they are a bad leader what do you do to work with them what skills do you teach them
0: well i mean, it's the first you know like any good diagnostician the first the first order of business is to get an mri right you wouldn't walk into your cardiologist point to your chest and say hey, i'm having some real sharp pains right here and want that cardiologist to say oh that needs a stint in your upper left ventricle let's go put one in Okay. right You'd 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 want something a little more sound on, on which to base that choice. So we go under the hood and do a lot of diagnostic work. We get, get deep into the, the life and the psyche and the world of those leaders to find out what's going on, what, what choices are they making that they're not going the way they want them to, what behaviors are they showing others that are causing the trouble before we give a prescription to help them change. And, that, and those can vary. You have sometimes leaders who are overly aggressive they have anger issues. You have leaders who hog the spotlight. Uh, they, they freeze up under pressure. They have no spines. They can't make a hard call. So the ranges of issues that we face vary. Um, it, and so we usually build a plan around what the diagnosis says uh, is the challenge this leader has to overcome.
2: So when you're dealing with these leaders or these individuals, what what trains a person to be a leader? Because that's one of the things I think is most difficult, because I've worked in places before where my my bosses were leaders per se, but they never were able to lead. They actually either were put in that position because someone did them a favor or they earned a promotion, but they really didn't have leadership skills. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it turns out that, you know, you're not alone in discovering the fact that just now – just because you're in charge doesn't make you a leader. Um, You know, leadership's not about the title you have or how many people you have reporting to you. Leadership is, at the end of the day, if nobody's following you, you're not leading. And just because you report to, somebody reports to you doesn't make you a leader. People have to want to go where you're going. People have to want to take the hill you're taking. They have to want to and believe in the picture you're painting of the future. Uh, And if all you're doing is barking orders or being a benevolent santa claus or um you know sitting behind a desk and answering emails or writing checks or whatever that's by no means leadership um it's barely even management so you know if you if you really want to lead others and and i tell people all the time don't lead if you don't want to lead okay don't take a promotion to a job and have people reporting to you or just because it pays more money um, because leadership's way too hard and you cause a lot of other people to suffer when you choose not to do it well.
2: Is this one of the reasons why we see so many small businesses have a trouble staying afloat because people have this great idea that they want to own a business they want to employ people but because they can't lead the people to do what they need them to do the place just actually falls apart upon itself.
0: Yeah, that's certainly one of them, Bill. I mean, I think when people start small businesses, um, you know, they want to be entrepreneurial, they often have no idea what they're getting themselves into. Um, and, and sometimes it was their idea was a bad idea. Okay. Or sometimes it was a good idea, but they didn't have the means to commercialize it well, or they didn't have the stamina to stay the course. Uh, and sometimes it means that they weren't able to scale it. You know, they hired people and they got more money and they grew it, but they weren't able to scale it and all the money that was coming in the door was going right out the back door in cost So there's a lot of reasons why small businesses fail certainly if you if you suck at leading people if you really can't get people rallied around cuz the dream of growing a business you're you're probably going to have that business be short-lived because growing a business from start from the startup is really really hard and so many entrepreneurs are not ready for the emotional toll the the risk the anxiety the stress that comes with you know taking something from your basement or your garage and and truly scaling it into a business that can make money and pay people
2: is the is the proper motivation um, that the reason they started the business because they want to make all this money or is the proper motivation is they want to actually contribute to the society or their community and that's why they did the business the money comes second
0: you know, I think there's you know so many different reasons. So many people start up businesses because they don't want to work for the man anymore. Right. They don't want to work in a big company. They're tired of having a boss. Right. Um, but uh, whatever the motivation is, if it's the wrong one, meaning, like I've never seen an entrepreneur be successful long term who is purely motivated by wealth. Okay. Um. Fortunately, there are there are not that many people who are actually just purely motivated by wealth. Um. They're motivated by other things as well. I think ultimately the visions that sustain themselves are the ones where you want you want to make a contribution you want to create jobs you, you believe in the impact of your product or your service you want to make a difference in people's lives. you know so the efficacy of your dream uh, has a greater good attached to it those are typically the visions that will can, can withstand the tests of growth and decline and disruptions and mistakes and um, you know uh, misjudgments and missteps. That any entrepreneur is inevitably going to face. So, um, but but you better love all that, right? You can't just love the good parts. You have to love the bad parts too.
2: So, Ron, how long have you been doing this?
0: Uh, gosh, I feel like I could measure that in centuries. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been but I've been at this thirty five years.
2: Okay. And when you, when you started doing this, how did you get yourself into the companies to say, "Hey, I can help you"?
0: well so um a couple of ways one as i uh early on in my career, I was inside big corporations, and so many of the relationships I made in those early early days of my career stay with me coming out uh, i I learned that um, you know when I was doing this kind of work inside companies, I had this nasty habit of telling the truth, um, which wasn't always what I thought my client clients wanted, and so uh I learned quickly that uh what got me in trouble politically inside companies got me paid handsomely outside companies. So I finally took the hint and realized that if I was going to embody my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. And I was going to—I would do my best work outside those corporations. Okay. Uh, as an outsider, because you know, ancient wisdom tells us you can't be a prophet in your own land. So I—I I learned that to be true.
2: So when you go into a company, do you look at everything, or do you look at one certain spec of the company and say, wait, this isn't working, or are you looking at the whole system as a whole to uh, say everything needs to be working and functionally like a good working machine? If one part is bad, then we got to rebuild from the bottom up.
0: It, well, it's, it's only the latter. I think so many consultants go in and, you know, it's the classic, if you give me a hammer, everything I see is a nail, right? Okay. They have their favorite tricks and tools. Uh, but we diagnose systemically, right? So we do a true MRI to understand your strategy, your culture, your processes, your technologies. We ne- may not be the ones to, to address all the issues that the diagnostic raises, but I but all those pieces fit together. And if you don't understand how they fit together, and you, and you, which is why so often we get called in multi, you know, after five other attempts, right? Right. Um, you know, you, 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 you saw this behavioral problem, uh, you did a training program, the behavior didn't change, turns out the behavior wasn't a skill issue, right? It was an incentive issue or it was a, uh, a structural issue in setting the bad behavior. And so uh, we get called all the time for, you know, companies saying, hey, can you come and do a workshop for my people on being more entrepreneurial? Because they're, they're such slow decision makers and it's taking ah. too long to get things done.
2: Now, are and, you... I,
0: and I'll ask, well, what, what is it that makes you think a workshop on being entrepreneurial will help solve the problem? Well, because that'll have them go faster. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we'll go sniff around and, and find out what's going on. And we'll say, gosh, you have 18 layers of approvals to get decisions made. Right. People who you want to make decisions don't even know they're supposed to.
1: And they don't have access
0: to any of the information they need to make those decisions. So no workshop in the world is going to change that if, unless you fix all those other things. And I actually had somebody say to me, yeah, 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 we'll get to all those things. But we think if we start with a workshop, it'll get things going. And, you know, I'm like, well, you need a magician, not a consultant.
2: <laughs> so the other question I have for you, because you made that comment about getting them motivated. Are you noticing anything different between the generations of employees about how they're interacting with each other?
0: You know, there's a, a lot of uh, mythology out there, Bill, about boomers and Xers and Gen Zers and millennials and how how much they differ. okay. Um, I did a, I did years of research for my book, Leadership Divided, uh, you know, many years ago, before millennials were even called millennials, but it was about the onslaught of millennials. Um, and the reality is that m- most of the good research would tell you that they're not as different as the world wants to make them out to be. Okay. Um, I, I, wrote, I wrote an article that started off with the words entitled, lazy, feedback-averse, uh, Promotion hungry, and I said these sound like the words you would describe millennials, right? Well, it turns out those are the same words that opened up a 1969 Life magazine article about boomers. Okay. So I don't I don't think the question is which which of those are you. It's which are, you, are those which are you when? Okay. Um, there are days on there are days I'm the millennial.
2: <laughs> so, but have you have you also noticed that because of technology changes, that also changes the way businesses need to look at the way they do things?
0: Sure, I, I think that every every you know artificial intelligence, uh, the use of uh, of big data, um, uh, so many technological forces are, are disrupting businesses by the day. They're eliminating jobs. You know, lots of things are being automated, and that does pose a threat for. You know certain skill sets that may not be needed for the future. I think I certainly think Gen Zers are far more tech savvy than my peers were. Um, They, you know, they live. They can't put their smartphones down. They do everything through a device. So I do think that you know today's millennials and and Zers are certainly more have a much greater proclivity to understanding the use of technology. But the reality is that if your business doesn't have a digital footprint um, in some form, if you're not understanding the role data is going to play or artificial intelligence is going to play or um, the Internet of Things is going to change your products, um, you're, you're going to be in some trouble at some point because those forces are coming your way in some form.
2: When, when you mentioned, and I and let me just preface this, I sat on a panel last week with a group of um, for high school and and college students. And we were talking about the cell phone in the business place. And one of the kids made the comment that their school is banning them because they're interfering. And my question was, how can you ban something that we rely on? Not only you as the student, but as the teacher, the professionals in this room, we have them with us at all times. How can you tell a student you can't use these, but yet you expect them to get information from them?
0: Uh, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting paradox, Bill. I, I think your interesting your term of we rely on them is an interesting one. I think we're addicted to them. Um, but you and I grew up in a generation from, from where the vast majority of our lives we never had them.
2: No, we do. We do how to we use did, an, We knew how to use an encyclopedia.
0: Yeah. So we <laughs> did just fine. Yeah. So I, I think the challenge is that, and we're, we're there is all kinds of neuroscience that It talks about the dopamine hits. Of social media and the dangers of social media, um, the, the the addictive nature of screen screen time, and how we are actually hurting our brains uh, in w- and our social skills in ways that we don't prepare for. So whatever efficiencies we gain in our information access uh, are being offset by the the, the downside and the the, the neurological behavioral um, deficits that the screens are causing. So I I, I applaud schools who are either leaving telling people to leave them home or I mean cyberbullying is a major issue. Right. So for whatever whatever benefits these devices might be um, adding we're certainly now coming getting far more honest about uh, the significant challenges they're causing.
2: Do you feel that the uh, education system in 2019 soon to be 2020 is educating our children or students for the workplace?
0: Not at all. And I think higher, higher ed is even worse. Why is if that? You're seeing, we're watching a, we're, we're watching a major collapse of a, of a major institution called higher education. Okay. Um, you, you, you're watching major corporations screaming, saying, you are not sending me employable people. Look what Delta Airlines did in Michigan, right? They went to um, a small four-year college and said, if we pay for the program, we'll, we'll, we, we have no technicians who are prepared with very sophisticated technology skills and knowledge to, to, to repair and maintain these aircraft and nobody will train them so they built a four-year degree uh, and paid for it and built their repair plant right next to with their, you know, near their Detroit hub because the university said sure you'll pay for it so you have now major corporations circumventing higher ed to get the skills they need you have students who are walking out with obscene levels of debt Yeah. As unprepared for the workplace as ever. And I I can't tell you how many times I stand in front of MBA students and uh, graduate level students, which are supposed to be your professional degree, and hear the words, nobody told me that. Yeah. We never covered that. I wasn't told that. Like fundamental, basic organizational skills on how to behave and participate in a broader community of an organization. Fundamental things. You paid eighty thousand dollars for a two or three year graduate degree. You're still paying off your undergraduate degree, and you're still not prepared to be employed. So I think the I think higher ed is in. I mean, now you're watching it. You're saying major corporations. You're seeing them saying we don't no we're not asking for a four year degree. So at the minute that stronghold comes off of employment, um, and you're seeing people now flock to trade schools now to. Realize they can make ninety hundred grand a year in a trade, uh, and you t- and you have employers taking off the requirement of a four-year degree to get an entry-level position. You're going to start to see this institution, which has long, you know, been out of touch and irrelevant, really start to decline quickly.
2: Any thought of why the four-year degree became so important in the late 70s, early 80s? That why we were looking at that? Because was the skill market so full that there was no skilled labor jobs available and there was more in the um, in the business aspect? That's why we were doing it? Or was it just another way for the colleges and universities to get money?
0: You know, I think there was a tie, certainly coming out of the industrial age into the knowledge economy, I certainly think we believed that it was a, major, a lot of it was a maturation, right? No one after high school was ready okay. to go into the workplace, and so I think it was a, it was a, it was a one more stint at maturing young adults, giving them some basic knowledge, rounding out their problem solving skills. And I think there was a time where a liberal arts degree or you know an education major or a technology major really did prepare you for the workplace because it gave you a broader knowledge base. But now you know information is ubiquitous right um, we have the ability to distribute knowledge uh in far more far more um, multi-channel and multimodal ways um teachers in the classroom do not understand the world that they're asking most students to go out and participate in and so you have this massive in, you know incline of knowledge access and this massive decline of relevance uh, that happened so quickly in the last 15 20 years and so I just think that is, now it's only a matter of time. And plus, the, just the, the resentment and the attacks higher that is taking. Right. Um, and, at the, and at the same time, you still have you know, more people than ever are now, you, you know, you and I grew up, college was a luxury. Yes. Now, college is, you know, undergrad is a new high school.
2: Right. And, and, for, and for us, even to even be considered for a job, you had, a four, had to have a four-year undergraduate degree or they wouldn't even look at you.
0: Right, and and with that stronghold now loosening so fast, um, and people looking to get their their training in other ways, uh, and getting uh, and, and able to get their training in other ways, um, you still have universities who don't even take online education seriously. Yes, but University of Phoenix, DeVry, SNHU, you're seeing the rise of these affordable online, self-paced degrees accredited. Um, far more preparing people for, for practical roles in organizations than any other school are doing. At some point, the arrogance and the hubris of higher ed is going to catch up with them and they're going to realize, wow, this happened right from, and, and then of course, someone's going to say, wow, I didn't see that coming.
2: <laughs> so the question you said, if we're going to go to more online education, what's that going to do with the social skills in the workplace?
0: Well, I think think, think there are some things you can – it depends what the skill set is, right? I think that there are some things you can train for online. There are some things you have to train for in groups. And personally, I think you have to figure out what skill set you're building, what knowledge base you're building, what's it in the service of. um, And it should be – I mean, at that point, if you're paying that much for it, it should be in the service of a profession. Um, I think even if it's a liberal arts or philosophy or some broader or political science – even those knowledge bases have to have some applicable understanding right you can't just be for the broadening of my mind right which not a bad thing but I can can broaden my mind you know on netflix now yeah and so you know so you have to have some means to an end that's justifiable for the price tag and so I think you know there are lots of ways to help you can build your social and personal problem solving conflict management negotiation skills um without having to be in a classroom uh, or be online.
2: Do you see some of the skills that they are teaching in the high school and the college just being totally useless, just a way to collect money?
0: Well, I think I'm, I'm more concerned about the things they're not teaching. right? They're, okay. they're not teaching empathy. They're not teaching listening. They're not teaching problem solving. You know, I mean, um, we see, every day you see one new meme about, um, you know, a joke around. I'm so glad I... I learned calculus in high school because today I couldn't check out at the cashier <laughs> you know so you, you, there's just plenty of people mocking a lot of those skills and, and they, they tell you sure that was all good for problem solving skills well I still people see lots of people who couldn't solve a problem out, out of a paper bag so I, I do think that the relevance of the knowledge you know that they're getting in high school I mean that those curriculums have not changed in 50 60 years right. Um, and, and the, 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 the anxiety levels, the depression levels, the, um, the the, uh, inferior interpersonal skills, the lack of empathy, there are so many missing parts to graduating high school students that I, I do wonder, I get, you you get seven hours in a day, and you get 12 years of them, and there's trade-offs. But I do have to question, do we really need to be, do be doing calculus, pre-calculus, you know, algebra at the expense of so many other things we could be teaching them? Or do we need to create ways to make better different choices, Um different you know, choices? Some students don't want to learn foreign languages. So could we find other ways to get a more well-rounded developmental focus on, on the curriculums that these students are getting so that, that when they come out of high school or a higher ed uh, environment, they're really ready for the world.
2: Now, you made a comment about teaching empathy. A lot of that was taught at home at one time. So are you saying that's not being taught at home anymore?
0: Uh, I Not effectively. Okay. Um, because we're still seeing people come out into the world unempathic, uh, intolerant, of uh, people who are different, uh, unable to build and form healthy relationships or attachment. Um, I do think that, sure, there are some homes in which you had healthy attachment, you had healthy parent, parental role models, you had uh, honesty about emotions, you didn't have physical abuse, you, you had a healthy environment where somebody could mature. But today, sadly, those realities are, are fewer and fewer to be found. And so you have emotionally traumatized children, you have bullied children, you have emotionally arrested children, you have children who have been exposed to things well beyond their maturity levels, readiness you know think about things like substance abuse or sexuality you have students being you know young people being exposed to things that they mat- their, their own psyches are just not prepared for and they are not accelerants to maturity They are actually um wounders of maturity because they arrest you when you're exposed to things you're not ready for
2: you recent, you did a ted talk um concerning how to be more powerful than the powerless and i i had the opportunity to listen to it i've actually listened to it a couple times and there were a couple pieces in there when when you said power was taken away i don't think people realize when their power has been taken away as you mentioned in that such as being bullied or in other situations where a boss berates you or something like that how do you gain that power back after you've been taken away from the power
0: Well, I think, I think it's, um, we, we are, if we forfeit our power, it was still our choice. Yeah, we may have been subjected to conditions under which our power, our own individual power was curtailed or impeded by someone else's horrible behavior. Um, but, uh, the first question people have to ask is, um, do I even have access to power? Do I want, do I want to have power? As you heard in the TED Talk, Bill, um, you know, the, the the greatest abuse of power was not for self-interest. Mm-hmm. We, we see the Harvey Weinstein of the world, and we think that it was abandonment. People put their power down. And un, until we have people willing to use the power afforded them um, in the information, in the relationships, and the positions that they occupy, we're not going to be able to stop the people abusing it. So you have to want to exercise power in the service of something, something greater than yourself. That's what will make you want to pick it back up. Um, and, and if there are... If there were wounds involved in your forfeiture of that power, whether by somebody else or you, sometimes it's, sometimes we do the greatest harm to ourselves. We didn't. The, 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 other people may have started that harm, but we continue it ourselves. You have to want to pick it back up. You have to want to address the the, the narratives in your head that were put there a long time ago that told you you're inferior, you're, you're inadequate, you're you're not powerful, you don't you, you don't matter, you you can't make a difference. And you have to really face, lean into those narratives enough to want to re-script them so that you can, in fact, exert the influence on the world that, that is unique to you. You 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 know Believing that your voice matters, that your impact matters, that you do have ideas people need to hear. Um, but that's a process you have to want to embrace.
2: See, and I never realized that until I listened to your TED Talk, which made so much sense, that you have to want to have the power that has been given to you or that you've taken, because if you don't want it, you're not going to do anything with it. And, and, and there's right. a good chance, like you said, you will just put it down and walk away from it because you don't want to deal with that hassle of trying to exercise it in a way that's going to be beneficial not only for you but for who you're working with.
0: And the problem with that person, Bill, is that that's the person who goes on cruise control for 30 years and at 46 wakes up and goes, what the hell I do with my life? Right. I'm, uh, and that's why suicide rates among our peer group, you know, men in their 50s and 60s, you know, is so high, because suddenly people are are thawing out. Suddenly they realize, was this all there really ever was? Um, what did my life amount to? Where's my fingerprint on the world? Couldn't I have done more? And that sense of futility, that sense of purposelessness, that sense of what did I just waste my career on, sets in and it is so paralyzing and so agonizing because you don't get that time back. And so, you know, part of the reason I did that TED Talk was to try and unleash people before before they forfeit that power for too long to pick that pen back up and continue writing the story of their own life. And I
2: find that really interesting because I see that in a lot of the workplaces that you're dealing with, there's probably people in middle management who have been on cruise control for 30 plus years or 40 years and then wake up one day going, everything has changed around me, but I'm still doing things the same way.
0: Yep. Or or, or or even worse, Bill, HR comes to them and says, "Hey, so it turns out we don't need you anymore." Yeah, we're going to get here's your six month severance. Severance. Good luck to you. And that and that has and to that forty four year. And that has to be so that, that forty four year old has a mo- has a mortgage. That forty four yeah. year old has like a, a senior high school wanting to go to college, and that forty four year old has no other skill set.
2: And that has to um, be debilitating has... on him because that's going to really screw up your self esteem.
0: It's crushing. You, you've met that. We've all met that 44-year-old. That's, it's crushing. And sometimes they don't recover um, because they had a plan that they were at for 65 and out, and nothing was going to change, and they were all good, and they were numb. They were you know, numb right. from the neck up. But but suddenly someone pulls the rug out from under you or you misstep, and you are not ready for it. And they're, even today in 2020, when you're told, don't be that guy, people are still being that guy.
2: That's just interesting to me. You're listening to Online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, also on Fayette TV Channel 77 and CUTV, California University of Pennsylvania, and italknet.com. We're talking to Ron Carusi. And, and, Ron, how do you work with those people that have been on autopilot? How do you help them get out of that and get back into the game and saying that what they're doing is actually valuable or what they're thinking about is actually valuable to the company and to themselves.
0: Well, I think that, you know there's two different versions of that bill. One is the guy that still has a, a job, yeah, right, who has steam behind him and has a source of income. Because reinventing yourself at that part of at that stage of life is not easy. It's it's doable, but it, you know, but if you're optimizing for 30 more years in the workplace, that's one thing. If you're optimizing for another 15, that's a little harder. Um, so. You, but certainly, if you have an income base, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit easier to do, or you know you have to sort of cash in your retirement money. But either way, you have to step back, and it, it, you know people get anxious, right? So they think I have to reinvent myself in in three months, right. That's when my severance runs out, and of course that's not going to happen, right? So you have to separate out the income generating need from the reinvention need because you're reinventing yourself for something you love and are passionate about that's going to sustain you. To retirement and maybe even beyond, take some time. You know, if you've numbed yourself to the activities you were doing, you've numbed yourself to desire. A- a- at the core of self reinvention has got to be desire. Has got to be something you want. it Has got to be a dream you put down. It's got to be something you envision because it's going to require reskilling, new learning, risk taking, um, meeting new kinds of people. You know, the, the the journey to reinvention is not an easy one. And if it's not fueled by something you want bad enough, you won't sustain it. Um, it will never be fueled by fear. You know, fear of obsolescence or right. fear of unemployment or fear of homelessness, you know, whatever. That's not going to drive you to successful reinvention. Um, it has to be driven by something you're passionate about wanting to go after enough to keep doing it.
2: So people that have
0: plenty There's to... plenty of... Plenty of Plenty of great stories out there, plenty of mid career great stories of people who successfully reinvented themselves, went on a journey, you know, white knuckled through it, and wound up in careers and livelihoods that they could have never imagined being in, uh, for which they get up every morning giddy and delighted in ways they never did. So there's there's plenty of blueprints out there to do it.
2: So but when you have people reinventing themselves to do something they want to do, is that when they start working for themselves, or are they trying to find another employer that does what they want to do? Because I see being in your 40s and your 50s, very difficult to be able to get a new job, or at least get a job that was sustaining the way the previous job was. You
0: know, it's a, there's no one-size-fits-all, Bill. I think for some people, uh, they want to be an entrepreneur. They don't, you know, they, they're not entrepreneurs to start their own business. Um, which means go partner with somebody else, okay. or I mean, there's all kinds of ways. It depends what you want to reinvent yourself into, and how far of a departure from the skill set you've had that reinvention is. You know, if it's taking a knowledge base and a skill base and re-aiming it and repurposing it for a different context, that's one thing. If it's completely going from being, you know, um, uh, uh, an engineer to a restaurateur, um, that's a totally different pathway, right? So. Right. The timeline you're optimizing for for that reinvention, and the radical departure from what you who you are today, are both some of the determinants that would help you decipher. You know, is this something I do on my own? Do I want to find a partner? Do I want to find a small group of people who want to do it together, or is there some other organization I can I can become part of and be as happy?
2: See, I I would have never I would have never thought of that. I think that's very interesting. Another thing that I'm realizing, too, is the way for the older individual that has to reinvent themselves, the way they're being portrayed in the media, either in on social networking or social media, on TV advertisements, whatever it is. They always show what is the cookie cutter or what the acceptable way of being at the age of 45, 55, because they always show the commercial with the financial planner. This is what I want to do. And how many people are actually are dealing with financial planners that actually are able to say, hey, I've been at the same career for 30 years. Now I'm going to be able to retire.
0: Well, you know, I think that I mean, it's, I think you're right. There is some stereotypical depictions of them that are silly. Because we all know that seventies and new fifty, right? Yeah, you have people who are living longer, who want to work longer, or who, people who don't who don't want to have to have to work, but still will work. Right. Um, I think you know the, the 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 plan for your your financial well being well into your you know now you know you got to plan to ninety, right? You should be you plan to seventy five and be reasonably sure you'd be okay. Now you got to plan to ninety. It's a whole different thing, right? And so. I think the financial ramifications, uh, uh, it's very hard to make choices about your future professional life and doing things you're passionate about or enjoying um, when they're so hitched to your financial well-being. Um, because you know, if you work for a big corporation where half of your 401k is tied to the company's stock, right. that's a very difficult thing to put down if you're golden handcuffed to it. Um, so you know, your financial planner plays a, plays a role in the, in the, in the cast. Uh, of the story to help you understand, you know how do you begin to diversify your financial portfolio? How, or do you build a portfolio career the same way you build a financial portfolio? Do you build multiple income streams where you're making, you know, you want to make a hundred grand a year and you, you're doing thirty grand like this and thirty grand like this and forty grand like that? Um, and so, you know, a portfolio career can be a very meaningful way to have passive income streams, to have um, multiple ways you spend your day, uh, including, you know. Things not wanting to work, eighty hours a week. So I, I think there is today. The good news is, with uh, with, with digital access to a, a whole planet, um, there are lots of ways to generate income. Uh, you don't have to do it all one way.
2: Okay. Do you recommend for an individual that that to stay at a job for only a certain period of time until they feel they've either outgrown it or they get antsy and it's time to move on? Because I know in the past, a lot of people have stayed with that job because they're comfortable, they have the 401k, they have the health insurance, they have all this stuff. But in today's society, is it better to look for multiple jobs over that career, over that lifetime, I mean?
0: Uh, I, I think the person who stays in the same job for a career these days is, is a rare bird. Okay. Um, because because it's like it's that job is not going to exist before your career ends. I think... You know, like The CIA forces you to move every two years. I don't think that's smart, but I do think it's healthy for us to every four or five years sniff around, try try our hand at something new. Make sure whether your whether your job is the same or not, your skill set can't be the same. If you're not continuing to add to your repertoire of knowledge and skill, trying your hand at new things, staying current in some form, that's dangerous. Whether your paycheck is coming from the same role or not, okay, you know that's a a different choice. But certainly, you are putting yourself at risk if you are not continually adding to your repertoire, adding to your knowledge base, exposing yourself to different types of careers. I tell young professionals: I think once a year, everybody should go out and interview for a job. Really? Keep keep, absolutely keep tabs of what your market value is. Keep tabs on what people are looking for in your competition. Doesn't mean you should take an offer, right? But I think everybody should get out there and just, just for good habit, once a year, go on a job interview.
2: That's interesting. Um,
0: and just, just keep yourself externally grounded, externally focused, prepared for the worst. Um, find out what your market value is. Find out what people are looking for in skill sets. Find out what skill sets you couldn't answer the questions to. Um, just to get out there and stay outside in the marketplace.
2: Now one thing you said which I think is interesting and I want to go back to the beginning of the conversation when you said people don't stay in their jobs for long periods of time anymore but we were talking about higher education and have you noticed those people that are educating have been in those jobs for 15-20 years and never had a job in the workplace?
0: Tenure is one of the most evil things we've ever come up with it is a it is a evil institution it 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 allow people to retire in place the minute they got it
2: okay because I,
0: there are still there are still professors today who are literally using whiteout and whiting out <laughs> syllabi <laughs> you're and right adding in, and adding in new and adding in new dates you're right you're they right. haven't changed those syllabi in in 20 30 years it's unconscionable that they're taking the money they're taking 130 140 grand a year guaranteed no performance requirements. And not only have they never had a, a job in the real world, to your point, they couldn't hold one yeah. down. Because the minute someone tried to hold them accountable, they wouldn't know what to do.
2: My son is a sophomore in college. He's actually going to the same alma mater that my wife and I both went to. He has one of our professors that we had 30 years ago. And when he yeah. was telling you about his he was teaching class and going, he hasn't changed. Everything's the same. So, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah.
0: And it's I mean it's and you should walk in there and say, I want my money back. Yeah. c I'll use I'll give him my syllabus and my stuff. Why am I paying money for my son to sit in a room to get the same content that I got thirty years ago? It's unconscionable.
2: And, and, and the other thing is, is I always believe that before someone teaches, they have to work in the field that they're going to teach about. So they understand the ups and the downs, the highs and lows in that field or in that career before they can start teaching it to somebody else.
0: Yep, absolutely. I, I, I my, my son is, uh, literally tomorrow, literally tomorrow, my son finishes college. Um, we, it would be his, God willing on the creek don't rise and he passes his finals tomorrow my son will be a college graduate I sent he, he did two years of community college and he did two years in New York City okay. I sent him to a school that was especially taught by practitioners only right there are okay. some full-time professors but most of the, most of them are adjunct and all of them are practitioners they are all working in the disciplines they're teaching um, and the content you get from that kind of teacher the pedagogy the group learning the projects you can just tell these people understand what kind of careers they're sending these students out in the world for. Right. My son, because he has no basis of comparison, has failed to appreciate the power of that. He still sees all the imperfections of higher ed and all the baloney. Yeah. But I think when he gets out in the workplace, he will recognize, when especially when he starts talking to his peers who went to more traditional schools, mm-hmm. that the access to practitioners and the kinds of things he got to work on and the kinds of ways he was able to learn by people doing the work and being paid for it was very different than a more traditional school where the professor has been behind that desk and behind that podium for 30 years yep. and never stepped foot to get a paycheck in a workplace.
2: Um, years ago, a friend of mine, uh, him and I both have the same degree, and when we came out of school together, he had he went to a private university, I went to a state school, and I did all hands-on learning when I was there, and he did all book learning, but we had the same degree. I was able to get hired in the job and the profession that I wanted quicker than he was. And actually, I don't think he ever did get hired sure. in the profession because he didn't understand how it worked. Theory was great, yep. but he didn't know how to use it practically. And that's one of the issues that we're dealing with in colleges today that, yeah, they're getting all the theory, but they don't know how to apply the theory to the actual job.
0: They don't even know how to do an interview. Yeah. they You know, some of those schools are doing like one seminar on career development, you know, at a lot of part of your senior year and, and how to write a resume. And they they are no more prepared for the real world than a newborn baby is to go sw- swim the Olympic pool. <laughs> it's and it's again it's unconscionable that we're paying eighty, a 100, 100000 dollars. That's amazing. Four, you know, sometimes we afford a thousand dollars. You know, some of these schools are seventy, eighty grand a year, yeah. right? And after four years, these students are not coming out confident and prepared to use the degrees they earn it's uh, and we but we continue to write the checks right or give the student loans
2: out right now the so thing inter- we're
0: complicit, we're complicit
2: too. the thing interesting about that though so okay the schools aren't getting these kids ready but the businesses still have to hire them what do the businesses do to get those kids up to speed when they start day one or start two months in what do they do to get them ready for that opportunity or for that j- workforce
0: well, you see, what companies like Microsoft and Delta and these big corporations—they're going to the schools and saying, "Here's the curriculum we need. Here's what you know. We'll pay. We'll pay to help you build the curriculum. When we, when people leave your program, if they're ready to do this, we'll hire them, right? So you have colleges who are circumventing the system to get what they need. Um, otherwise, they're being hired into these venture level jobs to sit in cubicles and do meaningless, meaningless work. It's why so many students are being hired into roles that are not using the degrees they earned because there's, there's jobs that don't exist or others are, you know, uh, more, more seasoned professionals with graduate degrees. Right. Getting most jobs, which is why so many people are having to go to grad school now just because they, they, the four-year degree is like high school. Yeah. And so um, now you need a master's degree just to get your basic professional training.
2: Yeah, which is, which is unbelievable. So when you started doing this, where did you get your training from?
0: So I, you know, I I went to some more traditional schools. Um, uh, my my graduate degree, my master's degree in urban behavior was par- partly distance. You know, before we had online education, it was, I did some distance learning. Okay, I had some residential requirements. So I, you know, I did a little bit of a non-traditional because my company paid for it. Right, I was in a corporation where they it was so that was a, a major gift.
2: So w- when you when you do this, and the other thing is when you when you go into these businesses and you do this how do you explain to them that you're qualified to help them in this way i know you have all the accolades in the world i know you've written eight books i know you're in the harvard business review i know you're fortune magazine ceo magazine business insider all this stuff how do you go in and say i'm the one you need to help turn this around
0: well, I think part of it I mean at this point now no one's asking about my, you know, education credentials, right? Right. But 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 when I can walk in and I can recognize and spot patterns quickly and I can tell you I've done it before, right? When it, when a CEO or a president a division president or a senior executive wants to know is have you you know, when you when you get a chest pain, right, you're not gonna call up uh, go Googling cardiologists and check the rates. How much are you guys charging for a stint these days? Right. Right? You want the cardiologist that's done it eleven thousand times. So when when an executive calls me and starts shopping for my rates, I'm like, I already know I'm the wrong person for you. Right. Well the executive says, "Here's what's at stake if I don't get the termus around," or "Here's what's at stake here if this goes south." And I can tell you, yep, I've solved that problem, you know, five dozen times in ten other corporations, um, and I can tell you how I did it. Uh, That's my credibility. Is I, you know, at this point, I my pattern library is such that um, typically when I'm in a a first time conversation, and and I'm like, "Tell me what's going on," and the and the executive is talking and venting and frustrated, and by about twenty minutes into the conversation, I can already begin to see the patterns. I can already begin to suspect, you know, what we're dealing with here. And by thirty minutes, when I start to talk. I'll say, so I'm guessing in that meeting last week, this happened. And I'm guessing when you told your boss this, this happened. And I'm guessing, you know, in the last six months uh, in your team meetings, this has come up several times. And they're like, well, do you have a video camera in my company? <laughs> uh, and so what, what I, when I can fill in the story for them a- accurately, because I've seen it so many times, it may be the first time they're in pain over this, but it's sure as heck in the first time the planet's been through it. Right. And I, and unlikely that I haven't. That's what builds their confidence that I'm a credible partner to help them solve the problem they're facing.
2: So, Ron Navalent, how many people work at Navlin? Uh
0: So we have a uh, there's ten full time folks uh, in the in the firm. We have a also a very large network of partners and affiliates that we work with when we do big engagements. Um, so it's a it's a it's a robust network of folks besides the core firm.
2: Okay. So when you do when you do speaking engagements, who do you speak to? Just business and corporations, or do you speak to civic organizations or stuff like that?
0: Uh, I you know I speak at conferences a lot. Okay. I speak at you know um, uh, companies that are hosting offsites or divisions or offsites or professional societies. So it's a it's a variety of audiences that I find myself in front of.
2: Do you enjoy speaking to large crowd, or do you rather work one on one?
0: Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a diehard introvert. Um, all <laughs> okay. the behaviors, so, I, you know, I don't mind public speaking, it's, I, I've done a lot of it so I can do it. Right. Um, it, it's, but, I, but, but if you ask me, do I want to be in front of a crowd of a thousand or sitting on a table with four executives solving a problem, it's not even a close competition, but I know that the only way to earn my right into that conference room is in front of a crowd sometimes. Right. So for me, the public speaking, all you know, the, the, the more extroverted requiring behaviors are are my means to the end, right? It's, it's, the, it's the way I earn my right to be inside uh, around that table. Um, if I didn't have to, have to do it, I'd be okay.
2: So I can tell you enjoy what you do. What satisfaction do you get out of this job of working with these businesses and these people?
0: You know, I... For as much as corporate America takes a lot of hits these days, and big corporations especially are becoming the employer of last resort, you know our our economy, um, our ability to employ people who who want to make a difference in the world, who who care about their talents, who want to be part of a story bigger than themselves, these organizations running well, so much depends on that. And so I know that when I influence an executive and their leadership or their integrity or their risk taking. That they're going to turn around and tens of thousands of lives are going to be impacted by my advice. Okay. Um, and it's a daunting responsibility, but I know that every day I get to leave the world better than I found it uh, because of what I do. And that's incredibly gratifying.
2: In five years from now, what do you see uh, yourself doing? Still working with the same company or, or finally retiring?
0: Good Lord! Um, I, 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 you, from your lips to God's ears, Bill. I wish I could tell you the answer to that question. Um, you know, I, 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 so about about four years ago, I took my own medicine and I hired a coach for me. I thought I need, I need, you know, both to answer that question, but also to think about, you know, I, I need to take my own medicine. So I hired a coach, and she, she, she's been amazing in my life. But <laughs> she's like, I don't see you as the golf guy. Uh, so, you know, uh, which is probably true. I don't know that I'll ever not do something productive with my life. I don't know that I want to work this hard and travel this much right? Um, in five years. But, uh, you know, I do love what I do. I would love not to have to work, you know, to have my retirement squared away. I don't know if that will be true or not. And to be able to choose the projects more thoughtfully, to choose my clients more thoughtfully. I'm, you know, uh, I'm getting a little bit tired of sociopaths calling me. Um, I rather work with the nice people and the good-hearted people, people who really care about their organizations. Um, It's not that I don't think the sociopaths don't need help. I just don't want to be the one that has to help them.
2: Uh, Well, that makes Uh, sense. So... It, it it's just very interesting to to hear you say that because I know when you work with the companies that you're asking them where they see their plans being years down the road, but yet you're having a difficult time telling me what you want to do down the road. Uh,
0: you know, I I hope that if I had my dream job, Bill, um, it'd still be working in this kind of field. Uh-huh. I'd be, but I'd also be teaching teaching somewhere. Um, I'd be uh, writing more. I'd be focused on on issues of integrity. Um, I've done, I've had a couple of opportunities to do some wonderful nation building work. Oh, okay. In parts of the world that need. Um, and uh, I'd love to be doing more nation building work with uh, governments and leaders trying to, you know, stand up stronger nations. So if I could wave a wand, that's what I'd be doing.
2: Because with the nation building and, and, and doing that, I can see that being very valuable, especially in today's society, because with everything happening around us, that would be beneficial to all of us.
0: Well, there are certainly some wonderful nations in the world today that are not getting their fair shot. Right. Who have ph- phenomenal citizens who care about their future of their country, but not leaders with the vision to be able to create those opportunities they need. Um, and, you know, it's incredible. I mean, there are some countries in the world that have smaller budgets than some of my clients.
2: Really? Uh,
0: so it's not like we're dealing with very complicated systems when you have a nation of, you know, 6 million people who have a, a budget of, you know, the of $10 billion. Uh-huh.
2: So anything else you want to tell my audience before, I, before we end tonight's conversation? Because we've been doing this for almost an hour now, which honestly... That went by real quick.
0: <laughs> well, I you know, so I'd love for them to stay in touch. Come and visit us at navalent n a v a l e n t dot com. We've got some great books. We have a free ebook. Uh, if you're if you're facing some kind of change, you know, go to navo dot com slash transformation, and we've got a free ebook for you. We've got a quarterly magazine. We've got some great videos. Um, so it's a, it's a resource-rich place to come hang out, so come visit and stay in touch. Also, find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, so I'd love to keep chatting.
2: So do you have any new books of yourself coming out real soon?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> you it all the hard questions. Yeah, so. Well, hey. Um, uh, so uh, not real soon. Okay. Uh, there, there's one that's sort of uh, in a fledgling state right now. We don't know where it will go from here, but... Um, My most recent research on organizational honesty uh, that I published over this year um, has really sort of intrigued me that we can now predict what will will cause people to lie or withhold the truth. Um, And so I'm dabbling in the idea of what what that research might hold for the future.
2: Okay. Sounds interesting. And uh, once you publish the new book, whenever that that, uh, is, please let me know. I'd love to have you back on so we can talk about it because this has been a very, a very informative hour for me because you've answered some questions that I have been thinking about for a period of time, but I haven't had anybody to ask them to, and you've been the perfect uh, person to ask. So again, Ron, thank you very much for joining us tonight.
0: Hey, Bill, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great holiday.
2: And you too. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Ron Karushi from Navalance. Dot com Really interesting talking about business and the way management styles are and how the education system is or is not providing the education that the individuals need in this day and age to be able to get that job that they want. Because I think in a lot of ways, like he said, we've let these kids down in a lot of situations. But again, he's one of these individuals that are working it out to try to make it better and try to... Um, keep everything going in a way that uh, makes it more successful. So really, again, Ron, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And don't forget you're listening to us on WMCK.FM, Fayette TV Channel 77, and also on CU TV, California University of Pennsylvania. And we're streaming at iTalkNet. Dot com anyway we're going to get ready to wrap everything up on this hoot nanny here online with yours truly bill alexander i hope you enjoyed the show tonight hope you enjoyed the one last week when we talked to nel minnow as we talked about movies and we're going to be talking about uh let's see who's coming up in the next few weeks as i look at my calendar here online <laughs> and you would assume that i would be prepared for this situation but usually uh Usually, I have it memorized. But this time, we've been scheduling guests. And I don't remember the dates that they're going to be on. So let's look here. So coming up in, um, in uh, let's see here, in, January, hard to believe 2020 is in a week and a half, two weeks. We're going to be talking to Brett Robinson, or Brett Robbins, excuse me. That's on January 2nd at 10 p.m. And then we're going to be talking to a model, Jasmine Sojai, and we'll be talking to her on January 6, 2020. And we're going to do our media year end show coming up on. December 30th at 10 p.m. We're going to talk with our friend Eric O'Brien from PBR TV as we talk about local and national media. And we're going to be talking about what has happened in 2019 and maybe predict what's going to happen in 2020. And maybe we'll finally get an answer to what's going on with KQV. My fingers are crossed. I doubt it. But maybe we'll finally get an answer to what's happening on KQV. But anyhow... I am out of here. Everybody, you have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander.
1: If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com.
2: Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing Designer This or Designer That? Even Designer Furniture. On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com.